pray. Eternal Father, at the baptism of Jesus, you revealed him to be your Son, and your Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. Grant that we, who are born again by water and the Spirit, may be faithful as your adopted children, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. So, we are back in Luke, but we're not exactly where we left off in November. Um, Our last lesson was from uh, verses 11 through 27. And in that lesson, the, uh, the point was, are we hoarding the gospel or are we investing the gospel? And that's what the text was asking us, and, and we left off then, in that was last week uh, in November. And then in, through all of December, we were through Advent, and so we followed the lectionary passages. Uh, then, then we had Christmas tide that we call it according to the calendar. There's a Christmas season, so we had two weeks of Christmas. And, uh, and so now we are back in Luke. Now the following, the next passage to be covered is not what we're covering, which you may have guessed since we just had the passage we're going to cover was just read. But it says in our uh, Bibles at the, the man-made headings that are in here, it says triumphal entry. Well, as it turned, we've been in Luke for a while. And so we covered the triumphal entry passage last Palm Sunday. Last year, the week before Easter was Palm Sunday. And we covered that passage then. Now, yes, we do have another Easter coming. And yes, we have another Palm Sunday coming. But this is where we are, so we're skipping past what we've already covered, and then we'll probably just keep driving through Luke uh, as we even get to Palm Sunday. And then, last year, we covered the Easter passage out of Luke, um, a, a main resurrection passage. And so there's, there's another passage that has to do with the day, that happened on the day of the resurrection, and, and we'll cover that on this coming Easter. But we're a little we're a little out of whack on this, and you know we're still just getting over the Christmas thing, and now we're already talking about uh, resurrection. We're talking about crucifixion. We're talking about him entering the city, um, and and so we are. This is where we this is where we're picking up, and this this scene today that we're going to talk about is this Jesus cleansing the temple. So we're going to cover forty five through forty eight, which Ryan just read, and. Um, for some of us, this will be a familiar passage, whether we really know that much about it or not. But I think what we want to focus on today is that Jesus reclaims his temple for two reasons. First is the honor of his Father's name and to save sinners. So the scene is the sovereign, the one who's in control of everything, enters his temple. And he's taking it back. This is to, to put it... Get, the fuller perspective is what it seems to me, for me, this is what's happened as I've studied this passage, um, that it's more than just the honor of his Father's name. And it's quite appropriate that we are in the season of Epiphany, which is a light to the Gentiles. So there's this representation as the Magi visited, or the wise men visited, the uh, Christ child, that there's a 
a the gospel is coming to the Gentiles. Well, we're and, and the our New Testament passage that Sarah read uh, is a lectionary passage that fits the season. But it turns out our text fits the season, though it's haphazard as it may be. So, in God's sovereign hand, He decided we were going to have this passage, I guess, today. So. We're covering this passage. Jesus reclaims his temple for two reasons, the honor of his Father's name and to save sinners. And the first thing we're going to see is evangelism to the Gentiles. So in verse 45, it says, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My Father's house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now when Jesus says, my house shall be a house of prayer. He's quoting from Isaiah 56. And I don't have page numbers, but I did mark mine so you didn't have to wait on me to find my page numbers or, or pages. But if, if you have a, a Bible and you could find Isaiah 56, when we do Bible studies, I, I tell people, if you'll just wait on me, by the time I find the passage, then everybody else will be ready to go. I've even had this with Martin. I just now found it. But Isaiah 56, if you'll look with me in it, this whole passage from 56, the beginning of 56, is salvation for foreigners, is what the, our man-made heading says above 56. It's very, rather interesting that this is talking about when foreigners, those outside of those who are naturally born as Israelites, are coming to Jesus. And if you'll look with me in 6, well... Let's look in three initially. We're, we're really going to look at six and seven, but uh, this is why we're turning there. Look in three. It says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the church, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And now there's this, this concept of one, of one of the things I think, what's stuck in my head here is um, let not the foreigner say he's going to cut me off from his people. How many of us are hesitant to invest into people because we're afraid of what may come down the road. You know, I kind of like that guy, and I would like to be his friend, but I don't want to invest too much there because I've been left too many times in the dust. I don't want to have him leave me too. I don't want to have him hurt me or her. Um, and, I, and I'm talking about just general friendships, not romantic things here. I think this is an issue that many of us have have experienced hurt and upon hurt upon hurt and have had shattered relationships in our lives. And perhaps it started very young. This is, this is addressing this. This is addressing this that says, let not the foreigner say, he's surely going to cut me off from his people. The Lord's saying, I'm not going to cut you off from my people. You're going to be a part of my people. So he says that in 3 through 5, which we just read. And then in 6 he says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it 
and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So there's this recognition. Now we're, we're in Isaiah. This is the Old Testament. Jesus hasn't come. Isaiah talks a lot about Jesus coming, but we're not in the time of Jesus yet. But this Old Testament prophet is saying that the Lord is saying, all who would come to me in earnestness will be received. All will be accepted. Now, and this is and this is the all types of people. So there, you know, when we say in the Old Testament, who are God's people or who got, who are God's chosen people? It's the Jews. It's the Israelites. That is not a wrong answer. It's just that what he's saying here, and that's why we're called foreigners. If you're a Gentile, that's meaning you're not an Israelite. And and Gentile equals foreigner. If you're a foreigner, if you're not an is a natural born Israelite then what he is saying is you are welcome when you come to him in earnestness. When you have, in in New Testament language, we call it through faith and repentance. So this is the passage that Jesus is quoting as he comes into this temple. So he's, he's, we've talked for, I don't know, week after week, we talk about how he's set his face toward Jerusalem. He has set his face toward Jerusalem, and it's been a long time getting here. Then he comes, and it's this uh, triumphal entry. He's received as a king, a conquering king, and they're confused on this because he's not the conquering king in the way they expected. But then, after this, he weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps over their brokenness, over their ignorance, over their hard-heartedness. He wants more from his people than they want for themselves, and so he weeps over them. And now then, we're in this end of 19, and he's cleansing the temple. So he goes into the temple, and they're doing things that they should not be doing. And so he's cleansing this temple, and we're going to get there. But before we do, given that we just read out of the Old Testament, this thing where foreigners are welcome, I think it's helpful if we think on Ruth the Moabite, who said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, so they're they're taken off into uh, scattered land, and the husbands die. And Ru- the, Naomi tells Ruth and uh, the other daughter-in-law, uh, you, "Y'all go and don't be bothered by hanging out with me. I got to go back to the homeland." And here's what Ruth says in, in one and sixteen. She says, "Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you." For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. It's interesting that as steadily as Jesus had set his face on Jerusalem, and it says he set his face like flint. That means he was serious. How many many of you have ever made a decision? We could talk about New Year's resolutions, perhaps. Anybody make a New Year's resolution? Anybody break that resolution already? So, are, aren't we big on making commitments and then bowing out? It's just, it's kind of like almost what we do. 
But Jesus, when he was going headed to Jerusalem, he set his face like flint. He's serious about going there. Nothing's going to distract him. This this young woman whose husband died, who has experienced all kinds of grief, she says, "Do not urge me to leave your leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go." Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God will be my God. She's making this kind of decision. There's a, there's a thing where she is setting her love on Naomi, her mother-in-law. She is making a decision to follow her where she leads. She is not saying, I'll follow you as long as it doesn't inconvenience me. As long as you don't ask me to get up too early, as long as you don't ask me to lay in a bed too hard, as long as you don't ask me to climb a mountain too too hard for me when I don't want to go. She doesn't have conditions. We put conditions on all kinds of things all the time. There's a piece of this which is just a a product of our culture. Uh, Stan likes to quote the one, let your yes be yes and your no be no. There's this thing of making a decision and you stick to it. This, this, this Ruth did this to Naomi. She wasn't the only one who was outside the camp who made these decisions and then stuck with it. Um, a, a hidden character to me. I'm, sh- I'm sure some of you Bible scholars here may have a uh, better handle on this one. In 2 Samuel, you don't need to turn here, but I'll, and I'll read a couple of passages, but... Uh, in 2 Samuel 15, David, King David, is king, and his son, Absalom, is after him. So, there's a, uh, he wants to usurp his authority, and he wants to, he wants to be king. And so, David and his people are fleeing, and that's the, that's the setting, so that they can avoid his attack. And then, 2 Samuel 15, 19 and 20, 19 through 22, All the way up here. It says, Then the king said to uh, Atai, the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? You go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday. And shall I today make you a wonder about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you. And may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. So this foreigner is attached himself to David and the people of David. And he too is willing to flee. He has nothing to fear. This is not who Absalom's after. He has nothing to fear. Yet when David says, okay, people, and these are like, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of people who are leaving. This guy's going to go with him. And he says, don't, don't, don't do that. You just got here. You just got here yesterday. You have nothing to fear. May the Lord bless you. You turn and go back. Verse 21 says, But Atai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, wherever the death, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. David said to Atai, Go then, pass on. So Atai the Gittite, passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. So this Atai made a decision and followed 
in much the same respect as Ruth did. It's making a decision and following through. Didn't seem like a tie had a lot of conditions. Like if you're asking me to go through a deep river, I'm not going to do that. But as long as you've asked me to do something that I'm willing to do, I'll I'll be glad to do that. And I think too many times that's kind of like how we treat our walk with the Lord. But this Old Testament, um, these Old Testament Gentiles committed themselves to following the Lord, and in this, and 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 it's and it's in this true nature that they committed themselves. They they didn't turn somewhat. They didn't have a foot in and a foot out. And Isaiah 56 says that there's a progression of their acceptance and reception into the body and, and, and people of God. First, he talked about the place. From the place, there's, there's the place where God is, which is, um, he's found on his holy mountain, it says. This is, I'm, I'm back in Isaiah 56. And then, for his presence, that's in his house of prayer. That's my house of prayer, is what the Lord is saying. And then to acceptance. He talks about my altar. This is where sacrifices will be made for you to be forgiven of sins, to be received by me and accepted. So we have presence. I mean, we have, we, we have the place where God is. We have the presence of God. And we have the acceptance of God. All illustrated in those very words in this passage of Isaiah 56. But this is not just an Old Testament intention. On the uh, outside edge of this temple, there was the Gentile court. And this is where the Jews, God's people, were to evangelize their pagan neighbors, the Gentiles, and tell them about the one true God. Tell them about the grace that could be found in following the Lord. But instead, because of their hard hearts... They had set up this area on that outer ring as a marketplace. And they effectively, in doing so, they effectively cut off the Gentiles from the grace of God. So this, this is the scene in which Jesus walks into. It's, it, it's, it's not just the dishonor of the Father's house. Uh, so, so, and sometimes when uh, it comes time for uh, like mission trips and what have you, the churches a lot of times will, will sell stuff or or make things available, or what have you, and sometimes like out in the uh, foyer, or whatever that's called out there, they might have the uh, the stuff on display that you could participate, give money to, or purchase. Um, or, you know, as, you know, more modern people, we kind of like coffee, so maybe we'd put that as coffee out there, if it'd be more hip and cool. Plus, we could have coffee. I said, so I, you can see which side I'm on. I'm, there's nothing negative in my head here. Oh, could we have coffee and actually drink it in here? That could be good. Well, so some people will say, oh, you're dishonoring the house of the Lord because you're doing this thing where you're selling that stuff or whatever. You're turning it into a marketplace. Okay, that's, that's not a, it's not a one for one exchange here. This exchange is far more than the turning it into a marketplace. That has happened, but the issue is they've cut off the Gentiles from the grace of God. So Jesus is coming into that. Um, there would be Jews. Now, there, there's, a, there's a positive thing. I'm a, I'm a guy for efficiencies. I used to run a business where efficiency really mattered, and so I'd think about things and, um, uh, pertaining to my business. There were a lot of things I never thought of. I w- I'm not a thinker, but according to my I told my friend one time, I said, I'm not a detailed guy. He said, about your business you are. I was like, okay, I'll give you that. Um, 
and, and I would consider all kinds, not being a detailed guy, I would consider all kinds of details about my business so I could see if I could make it more efficient. I like the efficiencies of what's going on here, and I don't know that it's wrong. I think it just got carried away and it went out of hand. So during the uh, persecution, Jews are scattered everywhere. So the Jews have to come back to Jerusalem for particular festivals or feasts, and Passover being one, and this is what we're coming up for. So this is the time, this is the time frame we're in. And so all these people would come back, uh, but instead of having to take your uh, animal that, to be sacrificed and bring it from home and traveling days upon days upon days with these animals, then you just come and you bring money and they exchange your money for money or they exchange your money for a pigeon or, or, or whatever it is, uh, some cow or a calf or a Whatever it is, a goat, what, or sheep, whatever it is that you need to offer as your sacrifice at the temple. So this, this thing kind of made sense. And evidently this has been going on for a while, but the abuses of it had been going on for a while, and evidently they were being exorbitant charge. And so these people who, because of their, uh, they have a church, they had a church calendar, this whole idea of church calendars, it's not really new. Uh, we're not doing anything hip and cool here. We're doing something that's not, and it's not a, a reformation thing. And it's not the previous church, the Catholic church thing. It's not the Eastern church thing. This goes back to the Jewish thing and the way they ran their, their lives, their order of their lives were run by the, 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 the flow and rhythm of their annual calendar and their religious festivals that they would celebrate through that. Okay, that's what we do. So on, on these, to celebrate, you're coming back, and that's kind of like a must. You, you needed to come back. And, and so you would bring your money, you would exchange, but they would start, they were charging exorbitant fees and they were being unfair. This, and, and there would be lots of people doing this. And so this became this marketplace that was jammed with people. And again, physically, could a, could a Gentile even get into this court now? And apparently not. So the scandal that Jesus put an end to, uh, was the exclusion of the Gentiles when he said, my house shall be a house of prayer. He opened up the way of grace to the Gentiles, and soon he would open up that way even more so, and uh, and indefinitely, for an indefinite time period, um, for all people, when he would shed his blood on the cross. And at this time, we're looking like, Okay, we're, we're a week away here. It's, it's, this is not long. It's going to take us a long time to get there, but it didn't take this in, in the calendar at that time. It's not very long. His second quote from the Old Testament was from Jeremiah 7.11 when he said, But you have made, you have made it, my father's house, a den of robbers. And in the context of what Jeremiah is talking about, Jeremiah is giving a sermon. He is telling the things He's, he's giving the words of the Lord. And Jeremiah was calling out frauds. Jeremiah is calling out frauds. The, the, the uh, beauty of uh, what prophets did is they would speak. They, they, they were no, not, not necessarily foretelling. We, we think of prophets a lot of times as those uh, kind of genie people who see the future. Sometimes they would speak of things in the future, but they would also foretell. They would tell the truth. They would put this out there and they, and they wanted you to hear it because they loved you. This goes kind of back to our life group lesson the other night. There, there's, there's this willingness to speak the truth in love because of their love for their people. So Jeremiah is calling out frauds. There would be people 
who he's warning that they were embracing their identity as Israelites, or they were embracing the fact that they possessed the temple. And he thought, they thought that, that this would keep them safe from the judgment of God. After all, I'm, I'm an Israelite. After all, we have the temple. After all, I go to the temple. What he's yelling at them about is they presumed upon the goodness of God. They claimed him, they claimed a relationship with him, but they were not transformed, they were not changed, they had not been, uh, they, they were not repentant people. And Jeremiah warned that the temple would be destroyed, and therefore you don't cling to the temple, because the temple will be gone. What about us? Do we take our relationship with God for granted? Do we take the goodness of God for granted? We must not cling to our heritage. You know, Grandma was a Christian, and my papa was a preacher, therefore, and mine was not. I'm saying this is a what if. But sometimes we cling to our heritage, just like these people from uh, Israel did. They cling to the fact that they were Israelites. They're clinging to their heritage. Are you clinging to your heritage? Do you cling to your heritage to seem safe from the judgment of God? Do you come into his house, this church, to make yourself think you're safe from the judgment of God? We must come with repentant and broken hearts to receive this Jesus. Jesus, too, predicted that the temple would go away. And he he did that because they had turned this thing into a den of thieves. And rather than serving as a house of prayer and and serving the people, they they were taking advantage of the people. The people there were corrupt. Paul talks about this inward perspective of becoming a Jew, circumcised, or a follower of Jesus. In Romans 2, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Which is interesting, because we all know that circumcision is an outward and physical. But he's saying there's something greater. So in 29 he says, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. He's talking about the person, the person who claims they believe their praise is from God, not man. They're doing what they do because of their transformed heart, because their heart has been circumcised, their heart has been cut with the truth. They've repented and believed. This is an internal thing that we're talking about, not merely external. Paul was not opposing external signs uh, at the same time. And he, did, and he didn't say the Old, the Old Testament covenant was marked by circumcision, whereas the New Testament covenant is marked by the circumcision of the heart, a broken heart. That's not what Paul was saying. But Paul's saying those who are believers are believers because of what the condition of their heart is. So one greater than the temple is here. Put your trust in him and then repent and believe. The next thing we're going to see is that the temple was restored. For this time, this temple was restored. Verse 47, it says, And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people 
were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So now, how is it, how is it that Jesus could come in here flipping the tables over? Um, I think John's speaking of a, I think there are two cleansings of the, uh, two, two cleansings of the temple. I think one happened early in the ministry and one happened later. Uh, people will argue this and say, no, there's only one. And John was not, when John talks about one happening at the beginning of the ministry, he, he's, he's not necessarily talking, he's not necessarily writing in a uh, chronological order. He's just saying some things and here it is. And so there's really only one. I think there's two. And I think the earlier one, which John talks about, uh, he talks about, he made a, a whip of cords. He strung, strung, strung cords together with the whip. So this, this, the Kenny Loggins image, the, the Jesus on the wall, you know, if we had time, I'd have Kirk tell you who Kenny Loggins is. I, re- I referenced this once and Kirk's like, who is this he's talking about? So Kenny, and I got pictures on my phone that you can't tell the difference between what we say is Jesus and what we say, and, and what we know as Kenny Loggins. The blonde hair, blue eyed pictures we see on the walls, as Americans, this is what we do. We make him white and he looks a lot like us with better hair. All right, this seems very mean for that kind of Kenny Loggins image of Jesus to be hopping up in the midst of this Gentile court with his whip he made out of cords and tipping over tables. This seems very violent, and it shatters our perfect image of this Jesus who never gets upset. And then as good Christians, we feel bad when we say, oh, I had anger again. This does, I'm, I'm so far from, from Jesus. Jesus had righteous indignation, and I will argue that most of our, what we would call righteous indignation is really not righteous about us anyway, and I get that. But there are, there, there are times for righteous indignation, and he had it. How could he be doing all this and not be called out for it? How could a Roman authority, a Roman garrison, not call him down for this? Dude, you're coming into the temple and you're destroying it. You've got other people who are already upset because you just simply showed up. There are people who are loving it because you showed up, but you're also, there are people upset. Now you're upsetting this whole uh, court here, this courtyard. How is it he couldn't, he, he wasn't brought under arrest or somebody doing something there? Well, I think this is that sovereign entering his temple. The king has come. The one who's to preside over the temple, that priest, he, and we talk about him being, fulfilling the, offices of prophet, priest, and king, he's doing that here in this scene. And so he's in control of absolutely everything. And for a time, there are no pigeons being sold. For a time, there are no animals bawling uh, in this courtyard. There are no sheep bawling for their mothers or, or cattle or goats or whatever it is that they would be trading. There's none of that happening. He was in control of the father's house. The temple was his. He purified it, and once it was purified, he taught there. A commentator said, Jesus, in conscious fulfillment of Malachi 3, 1 and through 2, is coming as Lord to his temple to purge like a refiner's fire. Notably in Luke, Jesus, at this point, takes possession of the temple as the schoolroom where he teaches. So he's taking, he's taking possession of the temple for what purpose? And it shows that from here to the chapter 21, that the temple is where Jesus teaches daily. 
the people who he's teaching were amazed at his teaching. Yet the scribes and the Pharisees were plotting against him. They hated him and they wanted to destroy him. But they couldn't just come out and do it because of all these people who were hanging on all of his words. He was very popular among the people. That truth has a way of drawing people together. Now there are stories... I find this interesting. There are stories of the glory of the Lord, and I, I, I think I talked about that just even last week. There are stories of the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle as they were, as they were going through the wilderness, as, as God called them out of Egypt, and then they were wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. He, they had a system of being still with him. He, he, they were led initially by that pillar of loud, cloud or the pillar of fire. Then they set up a, a tent of meeting, that tabernacle. And there's a scene in which you can find scripture that says it, that the glory of the Lord filled this, so much so that they were not able to minister in it. Moses was not able to minister. Fast forward, eventually they replace this. We feel sorry for the Lord. He has nowhere to rest. He's, he's, he's moving about because of this tent. Let's have a permanent home. Solomon's temple. There's a scene in which, in Isaiah, there's this talk about the glory of the Lord filling the temple. That, that temple gets destroyed. This is a second temple. But where's the scene in which the glory of the Lord filled the temple? There is none. So was the glory of the Lord never in the temple? Was Ichabod written over the door that the Spirit of the Lord has left this place? I think not. I think this is that scene. I get chills thinking on this one. I think this is that scene. I think this is the scene where the glory of the Lord filled the temple because Jesus came, cleansed the temple, and then he stood in this temple teaching the people the scriptures. Can you imagine the God of all creation coming into us to expound on the scriptures? I think this is that fulfillment. I, I think this, I, there, there doesn't have to be a scene. I didn't say there had to be a scene. It's just I want a scene. There was a scene for the old place where God rested. There was a scene for the next place that God rested. Where's the scene for this place? As far as we can tell, and even in those um, intertestimonial uh, books, there's no scene in which the glory of the Lord fills the temple like a fantastic scene in Isaiah. Yet I think this is that scene. I think this is a kind of an amazing thing. But this too is temporary because Jesus is not going to stay here. Jesus is going to leave. And so, he, uh, he like Jeremiah, he too predicts that the temple will be destroyed. So you don't, you don't cling to the physical temple here. What do you cling to? And, ver- and, and we're going to get to this, Lord willing. Luke 21, 6 says, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He's saying that they're passing, they're, it's like they're walking by and they look at the temple and he's saying, there won't be a stone on top of another that won't be thrown down. All these stones will be destroyed. This 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 uh, temple is going to be destroyed. So from the beginning, God has dwelt among his people in tents or temples, something like a temple. Even And, and theologians have argued that the Garden of Eden is set up in this three stages like the temple was, or the temples were a mimicking thing of, patterned after, the Garden of Eden. It had these three stages. And in the center of the temples, there's this holy of holies. Well, that's what the Garden of Eden actually was. And so it's, it's, uh, there's an interesting parallel where 
God, all through history, has dwelt among his people in the form of a temple. But his, his, Jesus' opponents could only think in, of, in terms of like brick and mortar, bricks, blocks, those kinds of things, and stones, when Jesus talked about the temple. But Jesus was actually talking about his own body. He said in John 2, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The true temple of God is the body of Jesus. Now, we talked about John 1, 14 last week. We talked about several things in that first part of John, but John 1, 14 was really the heart of that passage. And the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. This is where God rested his presence. So he rested his presence in the body of Jesus. So Jesus is the temple of God because God dwelt among his people in Jesus. Jesus is the true temple. That's why we say one greater than the temple is here. The scriptures say that one greater than Moses is here. One greater than the temple is here. Beyond that, as we are united to Christ, all believers become members of this heavenly temple because of who they are in Christ. Ephesians 2 says, In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And Revelation 21 says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. I find this interesting that in, the, in, in John's revelation, he's saying there is no temple, yet we have people, Christians, and you may be related to some, who are anxious to see the, there's going to be this fulfillment of Scripture, people will say, when the temple gets rebuilt. People, we don't need another temple. Jesus is this temple. Jesus has come. We're not looking forward. And then if in John's revelation, at the end, it says there is no temple. How is it the an additional temple being built and sacrifices starting over again, which all this obliterates Jesus' work and person of who he is and why he came? That wasn't good enough. We need something more is what we're thinking. No, he came. He's the temple. He's where the presence of God is. So we saw something in the pattern of Isaiah that we see still here fulfilled in Jesus. So one of the first things we saw is this place of God in Isaiah, which was on this holy mountain. Well, Jesus, being the temple, is the place where God dwells. He is the way to God. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is, he is the way. He's where we access, have access to God. He is where we find the presence of God. Now, also in the presence of God, a little time out, uh, in the presence of God, I can also articulate how we experience presence um, at, the, at the table. We do this week after week, and it never gets old. But why? Because His Spirit is there, and He's nourishing and feeding us by His Spirit in this form of bread and wine. And it's something I don't understand and can't explain any better than that. I can dwell on the presence piece a little more. But I'm, I'm interested in some, I have friends and folks that would say, what we need is more music and less talking. 
And sometimes when we're in the midst of our worship as Sean's leading us, I think this is beautiful and I would like it to go on. Yes, I'm going to be, yes, I would. But to think that Sean can wind us up, and he can, he could, he could, he could wind us up in our emotions, but but if are we confusing our emotions with the presence of God? And what has God given us to experience his presence? He's given us Jesus, and he's given us the sacraments. As we experience the sacraments, and as we're drawn to the by the preaching of the gospel week after week after week, we are drawn into his presence more and more. And it's in his presence that we're looking for. Colossians 2 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So he's not sort of like God. He is God. God found it fitting to come in the form of Jesus to be among us. So we're looking for his presence. We want to come to Jesus. We do want to come to his table. And then in Isaiah passage, there was the place, there was presence, and then there was acceptance. And, and, and I would, I would, um, in, in the Isaiah passage, it talked about acceptance being at his altar, at the Lord's altar. So what we're reminded of every time we do take communion is this acceptance. There's an assurance. So that when we receive this and we recite this prayer at the end, and it's at the back of your bulletin after the the, uh, post-communion prayer, we recognize and and we're assured of these holy mysteries that we are members of the body of Christ and we are heirs of his eternal kingdom. It's in these words that we say week after week after week in this bread and wine that we receive. It's in that that helps soothe our souls from all those broken relationships that we've had throughout our past to say that this God, this guy who who loves us and has called us out of darkness and into the light will never leave us nor forsake us. He will receive us. But a text for this acceptance, Romans 8 says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This Jesus in this scene exercised his authority to purify that temple. Yes, he defended the honor of the Father's name. But he also did it to open the way to us, the Gentiles. And just like was read in our passage in Acts, Peter became convinced that didn't matter where anybody was from, that God's going to show no partiality as far as where you're from that way. He's, he's showing no partiality that all who come to him earnestly repent of their sins and believe in him are welcome in his household. It is for us that he has done these things. We give him all the honor and praise and the glory for going before us, cleansing the temple, and drawing us to himself and making a way where there was no way. He is the temple. Cling fast to Jesus. One greater than the temple has come. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us pray.